Hi, Greg Perry for the Historic Preservationist. Uh, today we're going to talk, uh, continue our chat here with uh, about mahogany, probably the premium, premium timber of its time, and uh, we're going to expand upon uh, trying to meet all the demand needs around the world. You know, probably from uh, the beginning of the 17th century up until uh, um, it was just used for ballast up until the end of the 18th century. Over the course of the 18th century, the British search for mahogany expanded through the Circum-Caribbean, wherever the valuable trees were to be found. Restless settlers, itinerant woodcutters and sea captains, and West Indian merchants leapfrogged from island to island in the northern Antilles. Some made illicit logging forays to Spanish and French islands, while others ventured to the British woodcutting enclaves in Spanish-claimed Central America, particularly as Jamaica's mahogany industry faltered, beginning in the 1760s. Vicious rivalries developed among those seeking to monopolize monopoly-rich forests in other locales. Clashing timber claims, unsustainable logging methods, incompatible modes of land use, and contested natural Sovereignties all contributed to rising tensions over tropical timber resources. While concerns about how to ensure future mahogany supplies might seem pertinent only to the narrow cohort of those directly involved in the production and sale, in fact, many in England and North America had come to expect it as one of the rightful rewards of the empire. Moreover, struggles over mahogany were often linked with those larger disputes over land, labor, and natural resources that had serious ramifications for regional and international relations. Just as today, spikes in oil, spikes in oil prices caused by world events are felt acutely by American motorists at the pump. Disruptions in the flow of mahogany from the colonial periphery sent shockwaves across the Atlantic. The cabinet-making industries in England and North America were seriously stall for lack of one or the most important materials. The search for a secure, reliable supply must be understood within the larger context of British strategies and colonial domination and imperial expansion. Although just one concern among many of the crown, the mahogany problem became a nagging consideration in its geopolitical and diplomatic dealings. Two pivotal moments came first in the wake of the Seven Years' War and then in the American Revolution. During both of these global configurations were the wartime mahogany shortages and astronomical prices highlighted the need to strengthen Britain's tropical timber reserves. In the first instance, following the Seven Years' War, the multifaceted Treaty of Paris in 1763 realigned hemispheric power relations significantly expanding Britain's territorial footprint in the Atlantic. In addition, Britain reaffirmed Spain's sovereignty over the Bay of Honduras in exchange for limited rights to cut logwood there, but not mahogany. Government officials raised awareness of the vulnerability of the nation's timber supplies experienced so acutely during the recent war and also indirectly gave momentum to remarkable governmental initiatives to establish a tropical forest preserve on the newly ceded island of Tobago, which previously had been a French colony. 
buoyed by a growing number of self-confidence and enlightenment. However, many Britons resented an agreement for both conceding too much for their vanquished enemy and for being overly restricted in ways they sought would limit economic development in the newly acquired territories. In the second instance, after the American Revolution had ignited a conflict that expanded into yet another world war, the 1783 Treaty de Versailles extended British access of the Bay of Honduras, and after it was revised in 1786, finally permitted both logwood and mahogany cutting. Although intended to resolve Britain's long-standing disagreements with Spain over access to these much sought-after tropical hardwoods, other provisions in the pretty treaty faithfully inflame the region's internal conflicts. The Search for West Indian Mahogany As the search for West Indian mahogany advanced from one landmass to the next, the Bahamas, the Cayman Islands, Turks and Caicos, and other smaller isles, it contributed to a steadily moving front of deforestation. Spreading with wildfire speed in some places, more slowly and piecemeal in others, eventually encompassing the entire range of the species. And you have to remember that there's some 54 species of mahogany trees. As many of these locales were cleared for plantation agriculture, they followed a similar development trajectory as Jamaica did. If anything, because they were much smaller, the rate and extent of mahogany depletion and of deforestation more generally tended to be given more rapid, intensive, and ecological devastating consequences. In the early colonial period, many of the smaller islands in the northern Antilles remained heavily forested and sparsely populated. Although claimed by various European nations, they functioned more or less as an Atlantic commons, freely transversed by ships of many nations and stopped off just long enough to replenish their wood or their wood or wood or stores. So the wood was to create ballast on the ships as they would eventually drop logs off. And obviously the water was drinking water for the, the ship's crew. While ship's crew might add a few mahogany logs to their cargo, they, they felled only trees glowing, growing close to the shore and left few permanent traces. More invasive logging expeditions began in the late 17th century when residents of England's established colonies, which were already suffering from deforestation, especially Barbados and Bermuda, reported to smaller, less developed islands to secure for their own needs and for export. While most of such island hopping ventures were brief, some entrepreneurs set up semi-permanent logging camps on adjacent islands, where their slave gangs cut trees under an overseer's supervision for weeks or months at a stretch. As these enterprises became more organized, persistent, and far-reaching, they impacted forests well beyond the island's immediate shorelines. As colonization of these smaller islands intensified, however, newly arrived settlers claiming the trees for themselves sought to shut down unauthorized logging by foreign ships and non-residents. At the same time, these colonists remained dependent on the larger islands established entree pots, both for supplies and access to international shipping. Jamaican merchants and factors, for example, profited handsomely or 
inter-island commerce selling tools, provisions, and slaves to small islanders and then conveying their mahogany and other produce to market for a hefty commission. Some of these merchants invested in land on undeveloped islands with a short eye on extracting timber, but as long-term eye on future land speculation. Among the most persistent seekers of fine timbers were Bermudians, which, whose island home has suffered from severe deforestation since the late 17th century. Located in the Atlantic Ocean off the east of the coast of Carolina, Bermuda lay just outside the native range of West Indian mahogany, although it was later successfully introduced, but obviously these things take so long to grow, hundreds of years, none of it has been uh, brought to fruition to date as far as forestry is concerned. Finding their island too small to sustain large-scale plantations, Bermudians took advantage of the central location and proximity to transatlantic sailing routes to establish a major intercolonial carrying trade among goods, people, timber, and commodities throughout the greater Caribbean. The other mainstay of the island economy was a vibrant shipbuilding industry that specialized in building sleek, agile sloops out of native cedar, a strong, rot-resistant, aromatic wood that proved excellent for seagoing vessels. Finding their local trees insufficient, Bermudians sustained their shipyards by buying or poaching mahogany, cedar, lignavite from surrounding islands and the Bay of Honduras, where some Bermudians eventually relocated. On their home turf, however, the Bermuda Assembly, meanwhile, enacted some of the earliest forest conservation laws in the British West Indies in a remarkable turnaround. Inhabitants succeeded in replanting many cedar trees, eventually foresting parts of the island. Since most of the free Bermudans own land or held long-term leases, they regarded slow-growing trees as a secure investment for their grandchildren's future benefit. Their farsightedness did not, however, extend beyond their circumscribed island home, nor did it contribute to larger imperial strategies of resource management or inspire a broader conservationist ethic. If anything, as Bermudians became more nurturing to their own trees, they became even more relentless at their own pursuit of timber abroad. Anglo-Bermudian settlers, although stubbornly independent, were local politics and trade were concerned, eagerly, eagerly followed English fashions, including the vogue for mahogany. Although some still preferred Bermudian cedar, the island's more affluent families updated their household furnishings to reflect the new taste using mahogany bought in from the Bahamas and elsewhere. By the 1770s, half of household inventories included at least one piece of mahogany furniture, as in North America, the island's cabinet makers developed their own vernacular that, while reminiscent of English styles, included uniquely Bermudian variations in construction and design, such as ornamental dovetails possibly derived from Moorish sources transcribed by slaves. Even as Bermudians were drawn into the currents of transatlantic consumption, the synthesis gave their mahogany objects a distinctive Creole twist. The Bahamas, long of primary targets of the Bermudians, timber forays, became an important new source of West Indian mahogany in the 18th century. In 1702, 
Thomas Walker, a judge in the Vice Admiralty Court in the Bahamas, sent numerous specimens of native trees and plants for presentation at the Royal Society. This show and tell before an audience of England's scientific luminaries that included Hans Sloan, exhibited some examples of mahogany, Brazil wood, a saffron tree, and many other plants of virtue. Although Walker claimed no great discoveries, he proudly saw himself as contributing to the vital British project of information gathering. Some of his specimens are still extant at the Sloan Abarian at the Natural History Museum in London. In 1705, during the War of the Spanish Secession, Spain sacked New Provenance, the largest of the Bahamas. Walker fled to South Carolina with only the shirt on his back. When he petitioned the Admiralty for compensation, he cited his botanizing as part of his service to the National and promised to do only more if his property was restored. Once the war ended, however, thousands of sailors were decommissioned, some of whom became buccaneers and turned the Bahamas into a pirate haven for several years. Walker made a name for himself by attempting to prosecute these lawless immigrants. Thanks in part to his efforts, some order was achieved in 1717. Thereafter, New Providence became a center for shipbuilding, utilizing the native mahogany. But shipwrights incre increasingly competed for wood with their own colonists, who regarded it as an important export commodity, consigning large shipments to the Carolinas and Mid-Atlantic and even New England in the States. As the reputation of Provenance wood became established, cabinet makers sought it out. Soon, the Bahamas were second only to Jamaica in mahogany exports. Consequently, by 1725, when naturalist Mark Gatsby wrote the first formal botanical description of West Indian mahogany after visiting the Bahamas, the trees were already disappearing. Four years later, the Colonial Assembly, determined to protect the shipbuilding industry, enacted several forest conservation measures forbidding destruction by fire of all timber trees growing on the islands, levying fines for damage, done by cattle running loose, and forbidding all timber exports. Nevertheless, strong consumer demands for provenance wood, especially in the North American colonies, prompted many islanders to ignore this export ban. The Bahamas' reputation for excellent timber became so well established that after the American Revolution, many loyalists fled and intending to take up logging and shipbuilding there, only to learn that by then, much of the timber utilized there were actually originated on smaller and more remote islands, making harvesting much more difficult. The Cayman Islands were the particular target of Jamaican merchants, and woodcutting anticipated the demise of the accessible coastal mahogany on their home isle. Located approximately 190 miles north of Jamaica, the Caymans are an archipelago compromised of over 30 small islands surrounded by hundreds of tiny caves and coral tolls. Discovered by the Spanish in 1492, they initially generated little colonizing interest, serving mainly as a private haven and a convenient layover for ships en route farther south. 
known for the sea turtles that returned every year to lay their eggs on this pristine sands. The low-lying island supplied passing ships with hundreds of the heavy-shelled creatures, kept alive on board as a source of fresh water or meat sold as a culinary delicacy. The Caymans, taken over by England in 1629, remained sparsely settled until 1735. When the English crown awarded the first land grant on Grand Cayman to John Middleton, Daniel Campbell, and Mary Campbell, a map of the 3,000-acre claim carefully designated, Here is Timber, or No Timber Here. Samuel Sporff, a prominent shipbuilder, secured a 1,000-acre grant in 1741 and initiated a regular shipping route between the Cayman Islands and Jamaica. Not surprisingly, since he hailed from Bermuda, he was particularly interested in the island's forest resources. On a tropical voyage, his 25-ton sloop, the Experiment, left Kingston for the Caymans in fully ballasted on the 21st of September, 1744, and returned 12 weeks later with 81 pieces of mahogany. It seems quite possible that at least some of the timber was cut from his own land. Kingston merchants William Forrest and Benjamin Battersby filmed a business partnership in process prospect for timber on the Cayman Islands during the same early settlement period. In 1734, even before securing a land grant, the partners sent eight slaves, each marked FB upon their left shoulder, to Grand Cayman to cut mahogany. Since either Foster or Battersby was willing to relocate they hired a local man to oversee their slaves and to select promising logging sites in exchange for a quarter share of the cut of the wood. Unfortunately, the mahogany on the claim was quickly exhausted by forcing the slaves to move consistently to new areas in search of trees. Foster personally reconnected the deep into the interior for the mahogany-rich spots. As per local custom, the partners could only stake a claim by actually putting slaves to work on each one. Faced with rising operating costs and declining returns, Foster and Battersby for not contributing his share for their mounting capital expenses. Battersby, in turn, accused Foster of misappropriating the slaves' labor in comprising with the overseer and Sawyer to cheat him. Whatever the truth of the matter, Grand Cayman, although still known for its lofty trees that Edward Long described as appearing like a grove of mast emerging out of the ocean, produced less and less mahogany. As on Jamaica, the Cayman mahogany industry proved unsustainable. Although permanent settlers shifted to growing cotton, sojourning, sojourning woodcutters were forced to move on in the search of new mahogany sources elsewhere. Beginning in 1756, Britain became embroiled in the Seven Years' War, a violent contest for territorial supremacy against the Allied forces of France and Spain, and eventually splayed across several continents. When Britain finally prevailed and took the upper hand in peace negotiations, its diplomats had to decide whether territories to keep, return, or exchange from a long list of prizes, including New France, Spain, 
Florida, Cuba, Guadalupe, Martinique, and the so-called Seated Islands of Tobago, St. Vincent, Dominica, and Grenada. As they pondered what these various places afforded the Britain could not only already supply to its subjects, government officials, private interest groups, planters, and colonial representatives in England and the West Indies all weighed in, giving rise to a brief revealing moment of national introspection about the cost and benefits of their increasingly sprawling empire. When the Treaty of Paris was concluded in 1763, Britain returned most of its established French and Spanish sugar islands, including Guadeloupe and Martinique, to France and Cuba to Spain, but kept Canada, Florida, and the relatively undeveloped ceded islands. Many people in England and the colonies bitterly rued the decision to trade highly productive sugar islands for acres of northern snow, alligator-infested swamps, and unimproved tropical wilderness. In addition, critics felt that the negotiators' recognition of Spain's sovereignty over the Bay of Honduras, in exchange for limited woodcutting privileges that included mahogany, revealed either unforgivable ignorance or cruel indifference to the Anglo woodcutters. Changing circumstances in their, their, their fields, since they increasingly relied on it as their most important line of trade. Having sampled Cuban sugar and mahogany during Britain's wartime occupation of Havana, its restoration to Spain particularly upset English and Anglo-American merchants. During this 10-month period, they had enjoyed a flourishing trade with the island and initiated promising commercial contacts with Cuban planters and businessmen that they had hoped to expand upon. When England instead returned the island, Spain immediately reimposed strict trade restrictions. By comparison, the decision to keep Florida, which was still largely unfamiliar to the English, seemed extremely dubious. According to one commentator, it is said that there is a great deal of mahogany growing in the Floridas, and if so, it will be fortunate enough for the settlers. But whether they are abound with mahogany or not, the island of Cuba amply abounds with that commodity. The Spaniards, perhaps, may be introduced to bring large quantities thereof to Mobile, Pensacola, and St. Augustine to counter such skepticism and attract potential settlers. Florida's newly appointed governor published glowing accounts of the region's rich agricultural lands and vast forest. Once loggers and shipbuilders established themselves, however, they exhausted the accessible mahogany along the Florida's coast in little more than a decade. Moreover, English settlers who sought their fortunes on this frontier were later displaced when Spain temporarily regained Florida in 1784. Information about the ceded islands seemed more promising. Earlier French sources had rhapsodized tobacco's rich garland of large trees fit not only to ravish the beholder's sight, but also to employ the carpenters, turners, dyers, and even the physicians, skill with the solidarity of the sweet scent, beautiful colors, and hidden virtues of their woods. Ironically, for all the, the interest in the West Indies mahogany, it was likely absent from Tobago's richly diverse forest. 
and was not a native species in the Lesser Antilles since the wide channel separating Hispaniola and Puerto Rico prevented its natural spread. It was transferred to other islands beyond that natural barrier only as a consequence of human interventions, most likely during the first half of the 19th century, possibly earlier on Barbados. Given the still imperfect state of knowledge about West Indian mahogany's natural history in 1763, however, many assumed that it would be found on the ceded islands. Nonetheless, once the decision to keep the ceded islands was made, public discourse shifted to how the newly acquired forest and lands should be developed as various interest groups promoted conflicting agendas. The ensuing debates are revealing on how concerns over managing tropical timber and resources began to enter into, and at times conflict with, larger schemes of colonial development. Planners forced to move from environmentally damaged islands demanded immediate full access to the ceded territories to establish new sugar plantations. Land speculators pushed for rapid development in hopes of snapping up cheap islands for later resale. Both argued that the revenues from ex expedited land sales and the sugar duties that would follow could help restore the nation's war-stressed treasury. Meanwhile, the powerful lobby of prosperous West Indian planters, fearful of more competition, sought to curb the expansion of sugar and to appropriate the forest for their own future use, arguing that the growing of sugar must be absolutely prohibited or the woods would soon be destroyed. One Barbadian planter proposed admitting to Tobago only settlers and, of course, those servants and slaves who would pursue logging and non-sugar crops, consistent with the timber trade, such as coffee and cocoa. Even the native Caribs, he insisted, savage as they are, understand there can be no room for Indians to hunt, ramble, or canes to be planted. Pointing to Jamaica as a failed model, others favored a more gradual managed approach to land allocation and economic development that would balance agricultural expansion with forest preservation. They saw the ceded islands as offering a rare second chance to prove that deforestation was not an unavoidable corollary of colonization. On one level, this thinking reflected the transnational ideas of the Enlightenment that endeavored to improve the natural world, natural world for all the benefit of humankind. On another level, however, it exemplified Britain's ruthless aim to control natural resources as a matter of vital strategic interest, nationalization, and approved that Richard Grove's aptly termed green imperialism. In 1763, the British Prime Minister commissioned John Campbell, a respected social commentator, to develop a plan to realize the ceded islands' untapped economic potential. Seeing their forests as a great asset, Campbell proposed strict regulations to ensure that they cut a proper method and with this decision, because nothing had more loudly exclaimed against the sensible men in all of their other islands than the under misunderstanding and dis destructive havoc that was amongst the woods without any regard for the general interest, or at least respect paid to that of prosperity. With careful management, he insisted they could be properly and regularly cleared, and a succession of useful trees may be constantly maintained. 
providing fine woods for the use of joiners, cabinet makers, furniture makers, and turners. By thus establishing a British tropical timber depot, England could re reduce its dependence on foreign timber imports, support its furniture making industry, and provide steady employment for its mariners. Hearkening to this argument that sugar and forest were incompatible, Campbell also urged that incentives be given to new settlers to grow non-sugar crops, such as cloves, that they could take advantage of and also apply to Dutch cultivation techniques developed in Ceylon and lately published in Holland on Tobago, he concluded. Nature had done its part, now men, and odd and art and industry is helping to bring it along. With regard to the indigenous population, Campbell advised following the French predecessor of setting aside forest reservations for the Carib Islands, who, before securing that agreement, fiercely resisted any colonial incursions. On Tobago, he also proposed that the native inhabitants he deputized to care for its forest, a proper and easy employment to the Indians, in which, if bred to, their children would certainly delight in. Faced with a seemingly arbitrary change of colonial rule, the Carabs, for their part, were understandably alarmed by the demise of their previous arrangement <clears throat> and apprehensive about English intentions altogether. While pro-development factions immediately rejected Campbell's plan, it attracted influential support, except for his forest ranger scheme for the Carabs, from the broad and the board of trade of the Royal Society. Most importantly, Robert Melville and the Cedar Islands' new governor embraced it fully. A Scottish military man who had studied medicine in Edinburgh, Melville was deeply interested in tropical architecture, especially the cultivation of medicinal plants and had recently established England's first West Indies Botanical Garden on St. Vincent. After using his own funds to clear several acres of land, he instructed its first director to seek out botanical knowledge from practitioners of the country, natives of experience, and even old Caribs and slaves who had dealt with these type of cures in the past. Melville promised further that, if any time a secret may be got at or even an improvement of small expense, I shall readily pay for it. Well informed about emerging scientific theories, linking deforestation with climate change, Melville believed in forest conservation, although he did not see it as a necessarily conflicting with other land uses. To pressure Parliament to support Campbell's plan, Melville emphasized that France was gaining a future advantage over England thanks to their innovative approaches to managing tropical forestry, such as selective logging and replanting. Wetlands, in a major victory for Campbell and Melville, the Board of Trade announced in 1764 that, as land allocations proceeded on the ceded islands under the supervision of an official land settlement commission, designated parts of Tobago and St. Vincent were to be remain forested to preserve the seasons so essential to the fertility of the islands and to answer all public services as may re require the use and expense of timber. Accordingly, Tobago's 100,000 acres were divided up into 6,000 and 10,000 acre parishes, each of the woodlands preserved, plus a larger one on the island's northeastern end. 
The ceded islands were soon inundated with immigrants from all over the British Empire, including many displaced planters who arrived with their slaves in tow. By 1771, the land commissioners had sold over 57,000 acres on Tobago, totaling approximately 154,000 pounds in revenues for the governmental coffers. Despite efforts to stem land speculation, these absentee ownerships, many parcels were acquired by overseas investors, including bankers and merchants, and wealthy planters, residents on other islands also. Since a number of these same individuals were involved in the transatlantic trade, they accelerated the expansion of slavery on the ceded islands. Over the next 40 years, sugar production increased from 965 hogshead to 4,500 hogshead, while rum production increased from 411 punchins to 3,200 punchins. Tobacco rum became a desirable trade item at Bainese Island, the large English slave factory on the coast of West Africa. In the face of such rapid expansion, a well-heeled well land speculator and corrupt officials made the well-intentioned attempt at a more sustainable approach to tropical forestry on the ceded islands, difficult to implement or to enforce. Most insidiously, William Young, the head land commissioner, eager for rapid economic growth, cared little about conserving masses of trees, which, like many at the time, he considered unhealthy on Tobago. He opened up almost the whole island to the settlement settlement, leaving uh, only the least desirable land forest, selecting the choice acreage for himself on St. Vincent. He became one of the largest landholders and owner of over 800 slaves. Even Melville acquired substantial plantations on both Tobago and Grenada. Nonetheless, the experiment on the ceded islands set a significant precedent for future conservation initiatives elsewhere in the British Empire. For many years, however, such efforts took a backseat to the English West, West Indies, where more influential economic and political interests remained dedicated to the expansion of the plantation complex.